0: The Thanksgiving celebration appears to be somewhat of an oddity to our society, at least in my eyes, because of the following reason. On Thursday, we are encouraged to express Thanksgiving and to celebrate Thanksgiving. And then what happens the next day? It's Friday, it's Black Friday. And what happens on Black Friday? What is our society encouraging us to do on Black Friday? To spend money on buying things that we don't have, that we want to have. What's odd to me, and I have not yet been able to figure out why is it that Black Friday comes after Thanksgiving? Thanksgiving. I mean, if we are a people who are filled with thanks and gratitude and and contentment, the next day, our economic, materialistic society encourages us to spend money like never before in the year. It's not wrong to want to spend money when there's a day dedicated to special deals. I get it. I get it. There's nothing wrong with with getting the best deal you can on on something that you desire to have. Why is it that these two things are next to each other? I don't know. If you have an insight, would you come and talk to me after the service? I would love to figure this out. We like getting a good deal even when... um, when we have to spend money on it. There's something about um, us enjoying to get more value for the buck that we spend. And that frenzy, that that effect enables us and causes us, stirs us to actually spend money on Black Friday. We, We like to get more value for what we spend. That's understandable. But I want us to see a passage of Scripture where God reveals to David an incredible deal. Where God makes promises to David that are way beyond what David could have thought to experience and to have from God. God actually, in the passage we're about to look at God will make promises to David without making David pay anything for them. As a matter of fact, God will refuse David's initiative entirely. And instead offer David an amazing promise. Would you open God's word to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 7? We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 17. We're going to look at a passage in which we will see a revelation of one of God's most generous and uh, amazing promises that He makes to His servant David. And as we will see, those promises affect us as well. I cannot speak... Enough words about how central this text is, not merely for David, not merely for the people of Israel, but for all the earth and for us today as well. Listen to God's word in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 following. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of Peter, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan, Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go, tell, go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, For my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, whom shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a with his iniquity I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your ever before me, your throne shall be established forever, in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Amen. These are the words of the Lord. Not only for David, but for all the earth and for us as well. What a deal the Lord has revealed to us. Would you join me in praying and asking the Lord to bless the preaching of this word? Let's pray. Gracious Father, you have revealed your plans with your people, with David. And with his offspring. Father, I pray that you would help me proclaim this word in a way that you've intended, and help us all to hear it. And the purposes that you have for this word, that those purposes would be accomplished in our hearing, in our hearts today. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Second Samuel 7. This is one of the most important chapters of this book. This is actually one of the most important chapters of the entire Old Testament. And it is one of the most important chapters of the whole Bible. This is the chapter in which God establishes His covenant with David. The word covenant does not appear in this chapter. But other parts of the Bible refer to this chapter as God making a covenant with David. Just one example. If you have notes, jot down 2nd Samuel chapter 23, verse 5. But there's also Psalms, uh, Psalm 132, uh, Psalm 89. There's other passages in the Bible that refer to this episode and speak of it as God making a covenant with with David. What God promises in this chapter will be an anchor that connects the whole Bible together from Genesis all the way to Revelation. I wonder if you have listened carefully to what our brother Daniel read earlier in Revelation 21. The language of Revelation 21 comes from this chapter. The promise God makes to David here helps us understand the greatest of all kings that was promised to God's people, King Jesus. A key facet of the the coming of Jesus and of his mission is actually presented for us here in this passage. What God reveals in this text lays the foundation of what we will see with the coming of Jesus. So as we enter the Advent season and, and begin preparing our hearts for the for the coming of the of Christ incarnation, uh, friends, I hope that this passage will encourage you and stir your hearts and your affections for what God has promised to do with the ultimate King of Kings. But this morning, as we look at this passage, we will see that God's promises to David are way bigger than David. God's promises to David are way bigger than David. It would be easy for us to just jump straight into the Davidic covenant and focus only on that part of this text, but we must see what happened in this text that, that actually gave rise, uh, that gave occasion to God speaking such amazing promises That culminate in the Davidic covenant. This passage has actually two clear parts that are significantly imbalanced. Uh, The first part is going to be very short and uh, very quick to grasp. Verses one, two, and three, we see David's desire. Uh, That's the first part. The second part. Will be the longest part, the most significant part, and it's gonna be in verses 4 through 17, God's responses. So, David's desire and God's responses. And God's response is very complex. It has actually three sub points, all are introduced by the instruction of what God said to speak to David. No- notice in verse 4 Thus said the Lord. Look again in verse 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Look again in verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you introductory comments that all introduce as a way of repetition the word that the Lord is speaking to David. These are all subpoints of the major response that God has in this text to David's initial desire. So we have David's desire... And God's response. Let's look at these to see how these unfold for us and will climax in the Davidic covenant. David's desire. What is David's desire in this text? David's desire is to spend some money on God. David's desire is to build a house for God. We see that in verses 1, 2, and 3. Now, what stirred David's desire to build a house for God? At the beginning of the chapter, the narrator gives us a setting that prompted David to build a house for the Lord. Look at verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Pause there. David was finally in his house of cedar, which the king of Tyre, as we saw in the the previous chapters, the king of Tyre helped build uh, towards the end of David's reign. This tells us that actually this chapter moves in time towards perhaps the last ten years of David's reign. David was in a season of life in which he enjoyed rest from his enemies, and he enjoyed the, the permanent dwelling place for his house, for his palace. In verse 1, there's a sense in which we might say, I'm settled down. We've finally made it. David is secure in his home. The nation is secure from her enemies. There's a sense here in in verse 1, in the setting, of we have arrived. We've made it. God has been so good to us. A permanent home for the king... And peace for the nation. And during that time of of accomplishment and of peace, David does something incredibly honorable and good. He compared the house he dwelt in with the dwelling for the ark of the Lord. And something seemed odd to him. So he shares this comparison with the prophet. With Nathan, look at verse 2. The king said to Nathan, the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. There's something off about this contrast, don't you think? David lived in a better house than the Lord did here on earth. And David was bothered by that. I wonder how many of us would care enough to make such an observation as David made. To compare how our life is in comparison with the earthly dwelling of God. If we only concerned ourselves with our own belongings and our lives... We would rarely think about how the Lord's work on earth is doing. David makes this observation to the prophet Nathan. And without any further words, Nathan understands where David is going with this observation. So the prophet Nathan gives David the green light immediately to do what David thought in his heart to do. Look at verse 3. Nathan said to, ki- to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, David might have started working on the plans to build a house for the ark of the Lord to dwell in, except that God had other plans. David's plans were not God's plans. Nathan's initial answer to David were not God's plans. So we're told in verse 4 that God intervened that very night. Look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And Nathan had to walk back on his initial reaction to David or bring in more information from God that helps David redirect what he should do. And then after Nathan brings David, God's response... Notice how verse 17 closes. Look all the way to verse 17. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. What's at stake here is that David must hear the word from God spoken to the prophet Nathan. Because the previous day, Nathan said, go do what is in your heart verses 4 through 17 are the correction to the words Nathan spoke to David the previous day as we saw in verse 3 go do all that is in your heart now other parts of scripture will show explicitly that David's heart desire was a good and honorable desire first kings 8 18 through 19 Uh, King Solomon will speak of this very moment. And King Solomon, inspired by the Spirit of God, describes the heart of David and his desire in his heart as being a good desire. And yet, even though it was a good and honorable desire for David to want to spend money on God, to build him a house... Nathan's original confirmation to David may have felt like a green light for David to build a house, but as this passage shows us, Nathan's original words did not match and were not God's green light, even though it was an honorable desire. And this shows us a helpful caution. Don't trust your heart as an absolute guide even when the people of God tell you to do so even when Nathan the prophet told David do what is in your heart it may actually not be what God's plans are for you don't just assume that what is in your heart's desire is necessarily God's plan even if that desire is a good desire and a honorable desire remain open for God to intervene and change direction even if it's in the last minute David desired to build God a house it was a generous initiative it was a considerate initiative Showing concern over God's earthly dwelling and, and doing something that is admirable to do. If we are living better than the Lord's earthly dwelling on earth, consider, consider that. If the Lord wants you to do something about that, do it. But do what the Lord wants you to do. David's desire is the first part of this text. Generous, considerate, showing concern. A good initiative. But God surprises David in his response. For the rest of this chapter, in the second point of this message, we see God's response from verse 4 all the way to verse 17. And what we see in these, in these verses is God saying and making three moves in his response to David. We're going to see a no We're going to see a not yet, and we're going to see some amazing promises. In verses 4 through 7, God gave David a no. A no to David's plans. Look at verse 5. Go tell my servant David, says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Uh, the, The emphasis here is on you. Would you Build a house for me to dwell in. Later in verse 13, the Lord will tell David who actually will build a house for the, for the Lord. It's not David. It's going to be another king. But we'll hear that later. God, for now, has other plans for David. God's plans were so much higher than David's plans, as we will see. But, but don't forget the amazing promises that God will lay out in this chapter... Start with a no. A no to David's plans. Even what looked like a great initiative on David's part, of generous desire in David's heart, is met with a no. Oh, friends, consider the fact that even what in our own hearts may look like a good desire to do, perhaps even to do for the Lord... Even our great initiatives on our parts may be different than what God has in mind for us or for others. Have you ever felt that recently in your life? When it feels like God is shutting down a desire that you've had, or even a door that you thought God is opening up for you, and God intervenes, sometimes even in the last minute, sometimes in the nick of time, don't despise God. God's redirection. Don't fret when he redirects. Uh, even though David's desires seemed honorable and good, God reminds David that he did not have to uh, consider uh, needing to build a house for the Lord. Why? Because God's plans so far with his people have been plans of traveling. God has wanted to live in a tent. Because God has been wanting to travel with His people. Wherever they were traveling, God's plan was to be traveling with them. To be moving with them. Look at verses uh, 6 and 7. Where God describes Himself twice. Look at the verbs. Twice as a God who has been moving with His people. Since God's goal was to be moving with His people wherever they traveled... God did not need a house. A tent was a more suitable dwelling place for God. He could have asked for a house, but he didn't need one. David thinks that he settled down, arrived at a permanent location. At least for him, he has arrived at a permanent location. He now had a house, a permanent house. But God is gently correcting David's lens. God is gently correcting David's impressions. God's plans with his people are not yet fully fulfilled. David had a premature sense of being settled down and having arrived. He's not aware that as far as God is concerned, God is not yet ready to settle down with his people. His reign over them is far from complete. And this chapter will open up a new major chapter. I mean, this, this place, this text, opens up a new major chapter in God's reign over His people. From God's perspective, He's not yet done traveling with them. It's not time yet for a house for the Lord. Friends, sometimes we run ahead of God thinking that God is further down in His plans with us. Taking steps back and recalibrating our understanding of God's plans is so helpful to keep us from running ahead of God. Reality is, every one of us can find ourselves trapped into the lure of running ahead of the Lord. Friends, when we seem to be running ahead of God, it is good for our hearts to rehearse and reading God's Word, how He has been dealing with His people, spend time reading Scripture regularly to feed your mind with how God has been moving with His people. Sometimes God's moving with His people has been slower than we would like it to happen. Sometimes our impressions with God is, is the same impression that our kids have when we are on a jo- long journey. Are we there yet? How much more do we have to go there's something comforting though in these moments of no David and here's why no I've been traveling with my people I've not needed a home there's something comforting in this no David message and the comfort is when God's people were traveling from place to place God's been with them traveling That's why God preferred to be dwelling in a tent. Because God would rather be close with his people, traveling when they were traveling. What a comfort this is. In every place of instability, in every season of transition, God has been with his people. There's comfort, even in a no message from God. But then the second move, in the second response that that God introduces with, thus says the Lord, in verses 8 through 11, there's a not yet to David's hopes. A not yet to David's hopes. It's not only with Israel that God has been on the move. In verses 8 through 11, we see uh, the, the reminder that God gives David about how God has been traveling with David himself. And he, he begins this reminder all the way, all the way with Bethlehem. Remember what happened in Bethlehem? That's where God recruited David. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus says, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. In other words, God did not recruit this king from the highest academy in the land. David was picked up from the pasture, from spending time out in the fields, watching after the sheep and following them. In verse 9, God reminded David that God has moved with David wherever he went. God was not merely a companion for David, but much more. God was the one who fought David's battles. And these are reminders of what God has already done for David. In these reminders, God reassures King David of God's nearness with him, of God's active involvement in his life in the past. Even when the ark of God was not near David, God was near to David, God had been with him, and God fought for him. And After giving David these reassurances of of the past, God gives David reassurances regarding his future. The first reassurance is a great name. Look at verse 9. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now, why is this a big deal for a king who's already at this moment in chapter 7 in the second half of his reign? Why is this a big deal? Well, this is not merely a a, a promise of a great reputation. The promise of a great name ties this moment with a blessing God gave to Abraham. When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to give him a great name. It's as if we're experiencing, we're about to enter into a peak that resembles a, the first peak in the book of Genesis, the first major, major covenant that God made with Abraham. Abraham. Why would God care about a great name for David? Because God is saying to David, listen, I'm about to do with you the fulfillment of what I have promised Abraham. It's a God who is able to spread the fame of his king, even though his upbringing, his childhood experiences, did not have much to show for it. It is God who is able to make the name of this great king to be even greater. Friends, it is God who is able to to spread the fame of the king whom he is raising up. And just pause here for a moment to consider whether or not this one promise, just the promise of a great name, if if God kept his word or not. Just think with me for a moment today, contemporary life, modern day, A national flag has on its flag, on the flag, the symbol of a star. It's a star of David. Just think for a moment. 3,000 years later. Is there another king of ancient times who would have a name spread so widely as it is even today? Just think about this one little detail. God says, "I will make your name great." And 3,000 years later, there's a nation on earth that, as its symbol, has the star of David. God is able to accomplish what He had promised. In verses, 11, uh, 10 and 11, God promises. Um, things that are not for David, but now for the people of God. We'll come back to these promises in just a second. But the next reassurance after a great name for David, the, rest, the next reassurance is future security. Look at verse 11. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. What's surprising about this reassurance is that this is how verse 11, verse, uh, uh, chapter tw- uh, 7 started in verse 1. And this promise of God's working for David to give him rest has, has been repeated in this text. And now this promise is given with a future tent or tense. It's as if God is saying, David, you're now in a season of peace. I have given you rest. But David, your battles are not over yet. You've not arrived, David. You think you have. You've not arrived. Even if there's peace now, there are still more enemies ahead. But David, I'll fight for you. I will fight against them as well, and I will give you rest. This is God's way of saying to David, David, don't think that the journey's over. If I can use this in, in traveling language, just because... You stopped at a rest area while you travel. Doesn't mean that you have arrived at your destination. Don't adopt the mindset of we have arrived. So God has been with David and reassures David to continue to increase the name, uh, the fame of his name, and to fight against his future enemies. Sandwiched between these assurances... God gives promises not to David or for David, but to his people and for his people. Look at verses 10 and 11. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. What's strange about this promise? What's strange about this promise? The people hearing this promise at this time are already in the land. David had already united all the 12 tribes. David had already driven away Many of the enemies. Yet God speaks here of appointing a place and planting his people as a future promise. It's a future tense that's strange here. Knowing that the people are already in the land. Why is this a promise? Why is it not simply a recounting of what God has already done? Why is it a promise? Because there's more that God has in store for them. They should not think of their arrival into the land as a complete project, as crossing the finish line. The Israelites could be in the land and having rest from their enemies, and yet there's still a future reality that God has in mind for his people to dwell in. It's not only David who has to learn that the journey is not yet completed, but the people of God have to learn that there's still another fulfillment that God is preparing for them. They have not yet arrived. What is there more to experience? I mean, this is, the, this is the climactic moment in all of the Old Testament history. If we could look at a moment when, when it was the golden age, it was under David receiving rest. What is there more to wait for, to long for, to hope for? And this is where God's no to David is followed by a not yet to David's hopes. What is there more to experience? It's a third part, the last part of what God is about to promise David. This is the climax. God makes promises bigger than David. And this promise, these promises take the package... Look at verse 11. Moreover, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. But this house is very different than the physical dwelling that David initially had in mind. The house that God promised David is not something that David could have imagined or ever created for himself. This house that God is promising to build for David has four special custom features, custom features that only God could ha- make happen. Look at, let's look at these four custom features. First of all, it's not a house of bricks and mortars. It's a house of kings. It's a house of kings. In other words, it's a dynasty. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers... Now, just look at that timestamp. It's as if God is saying, David, I'm going to deliver this gift to you after you die. I'm going to deliver this gift to you beyond your grave. The gift of this house, the fulfillment of it, is not for the here and now in its climactic form. The best is yet to happen after you die. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Here God promises to raise up a king from David's family, actually from David's own body. And God promises to establish his kingdom. It's as if God is saying to David, David, If you're thinking of bricks and mortar or a house of cedar for me, I'm thinking of building you a house. And my house is so much better than what you could think of or imagine. I'm thinking of building a house of kings, of giving them a kingdom, of establishing their kingdom that I will secure for them. David, I'm not yet done with my people. It's only when your offspring is on the throne... And you will begin seeing the fulfillment of what I'm to do with him. It's only then that I'm ready to have a house built for my name. And he shall build a house for my name. It's interesting that God cares here for a house for his name. Just as God was interested to build a name for David. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. God says, David, you're not building me a house. The son I am giving you, the son that I'm raising up for you to be a king, he will build a house for my name. First custom feature is that it's a house of kings, a dynasty beyond the grave. Set feature number two about this special house, this house will have a throne forever. Forever throne forever. Look at verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom. Not only for his lifetime, but forever. In other words, time will not exhaust the permanency of his throne. Time will not run out for this kingdom. Time will not cause this throne to expire or to make it out of date out of fashion, out of use. The throne of this royal house that God promised David will have no expiration limit. This means that it's still true today. This means that it is still true for our children. That's why we should teach our children about this throne that God is establishing. This means it will be true for the children of our children and for the generations yet unborn. The question is, do we believe that this throne still exists today? That it's still in place? And I'm not talking about a physical throne. I'm talking about the throne that God promised to establish do we think do you think that there is a throne that is still in place today that is active that is real that you and i must consider how do you relate your life to this throne that god has promised to set up more than three thousand years ago do you think that this throne has anything to do still with your life with the way you live in relationships with your family, with children, with wife, with extended family? Do you think that this throne has anything to say to you in the way you live out your life today? Friends, today it may seem that God's kingdom is not relevant for the postmodern challenges and crises, but this promise and this throne still stands today And it's as valid today as it was in 1,000 B.C. This throne will not get out of date. Feature number three. Feature number three about this house. This house of kings will enjoy a father-son relationship to God. Look at verse 14. God says to David about this son that he is raising up. This king that he's raising up on David's throne, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Wow. This is unique. This is a secret to the eternal stability of this kingdom and of this throne. It's a father-son relationship that God will have with this king that will make this throne to last forever. In other words, God is establishing a family relationship to the dynasty coming out of David's body. God wants to permanently set in motion that the kings who will reign over his people will be family. Family to God family with God. We'll have a father-son relationship to the creator God. And then, if that's not a big enough wow, the last one, the last feature, this house of kings will have the unending love of God. This house of kings will have the, will have the unending love of God. Look at verses 14 and 15. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Now God makes clear here that when the kings of this dynasty will go off track, and it's not an if, it's a when. When the kings of David's dynasty will go off track and sin, discipline will happen. The stripes of men decreed by God will come and discipline the kings who will sin against the Lord, the kings of the dynasty of David. Discipline will happen when these kings will sin. It will not take very long for us to discover that the kings of David's royal house will sin. Some of them sinned big time, as we will see in just four chapters from now. But this covenant that God is setting up with David will not be based on or broken By the performance of the kings that are coming out of David's body. When they will sin, this covenant will still stand. Because this covenant is based on God's unending, steadfast love. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. Yahweh is going to be dealing with sinful kings. But he will not allow sin to have dominion over his dominion. God here, in other words, God is setting up his reign and his dominion over his people through a new dynasty. And God knows that some of the kings coming out of this dynasty will sin. God says, I will deal with them. But their sin will not break my reign over my people because my reign over my people is a reign of love a reign of unending love. Sin may cause a particular king disaster, but it will not destroy the dynasty. God's love towards this dynasty of kings will be an unending love because sin will not break this covenant. Friends, this lavish description of the house God promised to build David for David ends with a summary statement in verse 16. and God says to David as a way of putting the bow on this gift that God is about to give to David. He says in verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, and your throne shall shall be established forever. This is the Davidic covenant. This is what God promised David. A royal house, a kingdom, and a throne that will have no end. Its permanency is based on the father-son relationship that God will have with the kings coming out of this dynasty. And it's based on God's unending love. This is the Davidic covenant. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, a way to summarize the Davidic covenant, death does not annul it, sin cannot destroy it, time will not exhaust it. Death will not annul it. Sin cannot destroy it. Time will not exhaust it. This is a gift. This is a deal. That God gave David. And you might say, well, what does this have to do with you and I? Why should you and I care about it? Because the promises given in this text, this particular covenant, about kings coming out of David's body, are applied to Jesus in many places of the New Testament. Let me just make one. I'm just going to do one, but read the New Testament looking for the, de- for the clues where Jesus is described as Son of David. Let me take one. Luke chapter 1. So it's an appropriate place for the beginning of Advent. Angel Gabriel came to Mary inform her that she will be with child. And here's how the angel described the baby that was going to be conceived miraculously in her womb. He will be great. And he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus was sent to us to fulfill. The promises that were bigger than David. Jesus came to do, to fulfill in a physical body, to be the descendant of David, to have the lineage coming out of the body of David, because God promised a thousand years earlier that God will establish. A house and a kingdom and a throne that will have no end. That house, that throne, that kingdom will be characterized by a father son relationship and by an unending love. This is what Jesus came to fulfill. Friends, it doesn't stop there. What Jesus came to promise is that all those who would repent of their sins and trust in him and his salvation will experience the same kind of relationship that he has to the father. A father-son relationship. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Just as Milchal, Michael, did not receive David at the end of chapter 6 and remained childless. But to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. Born not of flesh, not of the will of man, but born of God. In Revelation 21, to him who conquers, I will give this reward. I shall be his God and he shall be my son. Jesus came to be a unique king who would have the father-son relationship to God the Father. Unlike the adopted kings of the, the dynasty of David, Jesus was truly the only begotten of the Father. All the other kings in the line of David coming before him have been adopted. Adopted sons. But Jesus was the begotten of the Father. He came to be the the son of the Most High so that all those who would put their trust in God, in Jesus, would also be sons of the living God. Friends, Jesus comes to fulfill and he came to fulfill what God promised to David. The promises that were bigger than David. The promises that are for us. His throne is still active. His throne is still real. His throne is still valid today. And you and I get to worship Him. You and I get to receive Him. Friends, I wonder if the promises God made to David that are bigger than David, if you are able to embrace them as yours as well. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being a God who has promised and has given us lavish, generous, unending promises. Father, in your Son, you have fulfilled for us, and you have showed us that you have plans for us that are way bigger than what we can imagine or think or expect on this side of our graves. Father, give us eyes to see, Give us hearts to younger, to, to, to hunger and to hunger and to desire that what you have promised for your people would come. Give us eyes to see that while you have fulfilled so many of your promises already, there's still a "not yet" to the final climax, that we are still looking forward and waiting for the final dwelling of you with us and of us with you, that the house you are preparing for us is in miniature form already here, and yet we're expecting and awaiting for that fulfillment to come when Christ will come again in His second coming. Father, until that com- time happens and comes, happens, Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with expectation, with a hunger to wait for your ways. In the name of Jesus, we pray.